You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezik, and welcome to episode not 126, Fran. Oh. I think it's episode 130. Yeah, I meant to do that earlier. I got a little <laughs> yeah. sidetracked. <laughs> and uh, we are doing something different and new today, and that is our first live podcast. <laughs> that went even better than, yeah, it was, than the first that time was we twisted their organic. arm and asked was, them to... Uh, <laughs> It's like we didn't ask them and bribe them with stickers to do that for us, right, Fran? That's, that's absolutely right. Um, today we are uh, broadcasting in front of an audience live from Nature Park Cafe in James Braddock Park. We're here courtesy of the uh, Native Plant Society of New Jersey, the Hudson County chapter. And before we start, wanted to talk about one of the programs that they've actually been doing on Instagram. If Ann could come up and talk to us for a minute. Oh, that's a little high for you. Sorry about that. I, it is. I'm a little short. Um, I'm Ann Wallace, and thank you so much for inviting me to speak a little bit about a program called Saturday Morning Poetry with Ann Wallace. It's co-produced by Kim Carrero and myself for the Native Plant Society of New Jersey Hudson County Chapter. We do this on Instagram. Throughout the summer, we, every Saturday morning, posted a poem by a different poet that's inspired by or um, covers issues of native plants, birds, pollinators, climate change, things of that nature, our environment. And then midweek, each week, we invited that poet to come speak with us with me on Instagram Live, occasionally on Zoom, depending on their uh, use of social media. But we would do an Instagram Live um, reading and then discussion of the poem and of poetry in general. And the idea of this series was to get people to slow down, reflect on their surroundings. When we read poetry and write poetry, we're viewing the world through a different lens and we're and we're reflecting on what we see it's a slow it's a slow activity reading and writing poetry and it's, it mirrors in many ways the work of native garden native plant gardeners right of really sinking into the world around us and and taking it in and finding language to make sense of and appreciate the world around us. And that's what we wanted to bring the humanities and the arts together with native plant gardening. So um, we had a fantastic lineup of poets, some very well known and some who are sort of emerging and everything in between. If you would like to, we just wrapped up our first season. We'll be back in the spring. But if you'd like to see any of our interviews or read the poems, go to on Instagram at NPSNJ Hudson County. That's the Native Plant Society of New Jersey Hudson County chapter page, and all of those interviews um, and readings are there on the page. And we invite you to come and check it out, and then join us next spring when we launch season two, which promises to be even more exciting than season one. Tom, are you going to write a poem for season two? I might yeah, have to. Please do and send it in. Well, that's very inspirational. Can can you uh, talk about some of the guests that you've had on? Sure, sure. Um, we just ended our season with Barbara Kingsolver, the 
very well-known novelist, mainly known for her novels, but she also is a poet. She uh, published her second collection of poetry in 2020 or 2021, very recently. Um, it's called How to Fly. And so she shared one of her poems. and Actually, she read a few poems for us. That was one, and she just launched her new book, which is fiction, Demon Copperhead. Um, we also had the poet Ross Gay, who is also an essayist, and he was phenomenal talking about community gardening, and uh, he's part of a, a community orchard where he lives, and talked about that, and just the, the um, bringing people together in a city, um, and this is particularly meaningful to Kim and myself as co-producers of this, because we live in a city, we live in Jersey City, and so when Ross Gay talks about creating um, public spaces for people to garden and come together and learn from each other. It just felt so relevant for us um, and, and inspirational, truly. We also had Maggie Smith reading her poem, Goldenrod. Um, and that's about, you know, language, and it felt like a love poem to Goldenrod growing on the side of the road. Uh, locally, we had Theta Pavis, who's from New Jersey, from Jersey City, uh, talking about the garden that her mother created, and her mother passed away a few years ago. So, um, and she was a wonderful gardener, and um, just what gets passed on, right? Uh, the idea of a garden as something like a legacy, almost, and an act of love that now Theta is trying to maintain, and her siblings are, and passing it on to her daughter, um, and how that becomes a story of a family, a garden. And how wonderful that is. So, again, we've had a, a wide range of poets. Um, those are just a few of them. Um, awesome. And what is the handle on Instagram? Um, so, it is, it's at the Native Plant Society of New Jersey, Hudson County Chapter. The handle is at NPSNJ, Native Plant Society of New Jersey, Hudson County. So, NPSNJ, Hudson County. Um, the feature is called Saturday Morning Poetry, but it lives on that Instagram page, and so you'll see it. If you go to the page, you'll uh, scroll through, and you can see the videos, uh, the, like the live video recordings, plus the poems that we posted every Saturday for about 12 weeks this summer. Yeah. I will be checking it out. Yeah. Awesome. You gave me enough time to brainstorm there, and I I've, I've came up with one. All right. You've got to tell us you want it now? Menarda is red. Baptisia is blue. Native plants, healthy planet. This should have been a haiku. <laughs> I think you're looking for something deeper than that. <laughs> that was very good. I expected a haiku, to be honest, so you, you twisted that up for us. <laughs> it's awesome. See? Awesome. Great job. Thank you so yeah. much, Anne. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thanks Thank so you. much. Yeah, and it's amazing that we can incorporate the arts through poetry, through sketches, through uh, well, actual painting and that kind of art into building a healthier planet and using native plants and just... It's, it is tied together. Or even conversation, just like we're doing right now. That's our form of art. This yeah. is, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, this is an art, too. We're artists. Um, but we should get into today's guest, because it's uh, been a long time coming. And I guess this is a recurring guest in a way, but... It's uh, our most requested guest. Definitely most requested guest. And uh, Rob, Rob Metters is going to be very happy, because he's put in most of the requests. Uh, and uh, And... The first time we had this guest on, we didn't really go into their history and then what they're doing now. It was more uh, some of the complications they've had in in their uh, growth, I guess, when we had our Women in Ecology episode. I feel like our guest is an enigma. I really don't know a whole lot about her. <laughs> <laughs> 
But so with that, if you haven't guessed already, we're having on Dr. Randy Eckel, and uh, and Randy, I'm going to let you give a brief introduction because most of our questions are the introduction. So just say who you are, where you're from, and uh, and we can go on from there. Well, that's a blank slate, but I'm sure I can manage that. Uh, so, um, so wonderful to be back here on the podcast. Uh, I was really honored to be asked to come on, and um, this is such a great venue, and it's, it's really cool that this is a, a live podcast recording. Uh, so, my name is Randy Eckel. Um, I actually have a PhD in entomology, which is the study of insects, but I started out... Um, I was a nerdy kid. I loved plants. I loved insects. I got a college degree. I worked for the USDA for a while. And in 1996, I started, the, uh, started Toadshade Wildflower Farm um, to make native plants more available to homeowners and everyday gardeners and restoration projects because I simply couldn't find them uh, available. Um, and then uh, just this past year, I was been my honor to be elected the president of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. So that's a, that's a very short nutshell of who I am, but at least uh, gets us started on this podcast, awesome. I think. Now, I, I, I did learn. Am I allowed to share what we talked about beforehand, about when we were talking about equipment? Probably. And, all right. So <laughs> I learned today that Randy played saxophone in a band. Uh, tenor sax. Tenor sax. I didn't tenor know sax, that. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. I wish, uh, is there any uh, chance of that coming back? Oh, I, I still have, I do have a Mark VI. I, she has it right a, here with her. Uh, <laughs> no, I do not, but I do have a Mark VI Selmer uh, that's uh, tenor that's still at my home. It's a, it's a beautiful right. instrument, so who knows? Who knows about that? But uh. All right, we can, maybe we can have uh, Randy do theme music for us. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we were curious, no, seriously, and you kind of touched about a little bit about your career, but where did it really start for you? You mentioned you were a nerdy kid and, and what your likes were, but at what point, did it become a serious conversation that you wanted to take the career path that you took? It's actually, it's actually a really great question because one of the things that I find very strange, actually, is that we everyone gets buttonholed into what they do. You know, you're a birder or you're a gardener. You know, you're a horticulturalist or you're an ecologist. Or you're a writer. And I always, there never seemed to be enough hours in the day to me to do all the things I was interested in. Um, so even as a kid, I was interested in the insects that were in the garden, but also, I was a little kid. I may have told the, told the story on the previous podcast when I was on. I I grabbed some bird seed and I planted. I, I, I obviously I knew that I didn't think it was going to come up birds, obviously, but I knew that the seeds came from a plant, but I didn't know what that plant was. So you know, I was off delivering newspapers because I was a newspaper girl as a kid, and I planted them to see what would come up. I was astonished to discover it was a grass. They were undoubtedly millet seeds, but you know, but I was also interested in so many different things. Um, and even in graduate school, you know, I started out studying plants at uh, University of Delaware. And then I went on um, to work in entomology. But my interest was the interactions between insects and plants. And I found a lot of entomologists who spend their lives studying insects. You start talking about plants, and like, they're like, oh, it's a tree. 
It's like, well, what kind of tree? Like insects and plants are really important. You should really know about both of them. Um, so um, after graduate school, I worked for the USDA for a while and then um, um, moved back up north. Uh, I was down in North Carolina at that time, moved back up north. I'm originally from Delaware and um, started my family and then started, it's like, what do I want to do? You know, and even just doing landscaping in my own property, I couldn't find native plants. I couldn't find, I distinctly remember going to a nursery and I wanted a red oak. And they said, oh, what, what is that? We don't know what that is. I was like, Quercus rubra, I just want a red oak to plant on my property. And they were like, we, we don't know what that is. And I, it, it boggled my mind that all these plants that I grew up with on my parents' property, in the woods behind my parents' house, were nowhere to be found. And I worked with a lot of plants doing my research, and I knew plants are pretty resilient things. I'm like, you know, these should be available. You know, and if I start a mail-order business, then they're not just going to be available to the people that are you know, within 10 miles of my nursery. They're, I, I can serve a lot of people that way. So... Um, so yeah, 1996, I, I kicked off, it was very small, but I kicked off toad shade. One of the first plants I was really interested in was making violets available because mm-hmm. no one had violets available, you know, which is a real problem if you're a fritillary butterfly and you need violets as a host plant, but no one had them in the nursery trade at all. There still aren't very many of them in the nursery trade. So that's sort of, that was sort of my turning point was, um, wow. None of these plants are available. Why are none of these plants available? And why are they all trying to sell me the same 12 plants at the traditional classic nurseries? You know, it's having worked at, before Pinelands Nursery, I worked at Princeton Nurseries. And one of the things that I appreciated there was... I never knew that. uh, Yeah, I worked there Mm -hmm. for uh, about eight and a half years. I was the uh, sales manager. And... um, they had records going all the, way, all the way back to the early 1900s. So mm-hmm. you could go back and see what they lined out on any given year, what they sold on any given year, all handwritten ledger, which were <laughs> really fascinating. But That's the way it was done. Yeah, at, but at some point there was a shift, and I don't know what caused that shift. I'm assuming it's, it's marketing and, and business, but – it was native plants because that's what we had. We had the plants that, that you could grow here, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I have a better version of that plant. You know, because Princeton Nurseries was one of the top introducers of plant material too and, and holding patents. So at some point that was the focus, and then somewhere probably around the 50s or 60s that started to change. Like that's when we started to see looking back that there was a focus of, well, what's new? What's new? What do you have now? Absolutely. Have? And it, it didn't just change it it completely moved away from it which was fascinating um and i want to go off topic because that's what we do here <laughs> for any of you that, that that don't listen what do you professionally what do you identify yourself as as someone who has a doctorate in entomology and you have a native plant nursery i struggle with that one personally because technically i'm a salesman but i don't see myself as a salesman i don't really identify with that but I don't have, I have the background, but I don't have any education that backs up any other way that I picture myself. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's another great question. It goes back to my, you know, the fact that we always feel compelled to, to 
buttonhole everybody in something. I consider myself a naturalist and a research scientist and an educator and a horticulturalist and an ecologist. Um, did I already say entomologist? And an entomologist. <laughs> um, because I, I think all of those things need, need to be taken together. You know, um, appreciating why the birds and the bees and the butterflies need native plants, but just sort of, you know, keeping it to myself and not telling anyone, that's just not who I am. You know, it's trying to impart that information on other people, and whether that's through, you know, writing plant descriptions that help to explain that, um, or speaking in front of groups, um, or simply making less commonly known native plants available. Um, a couple of years ago, um, there was a gentleman who hopefully won't hear this podcast. He may recognize this conversation. <laughs> but he was a beekeeper. I won't mention his name. But he was a beekeeper. And he was talking to me. He needed more plants for his bees in the fall, for, for pollen mm-hmm. and, and nectar. And I said, well, I said, you need goldenrods and asters. He says, oh, I have an aster. I bought an aster once. And I'm like, no, 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 not one aster. We have so many different asters in New Jersey that are native to our area, just like you can have asters flowering from August until November. You know, and, but he thought he had that covered because he'd bought an aster. You know, um, you know I, I, I balk at, um, you know, even, I digress, even when we, started, when we started to, and I know you guys are good with me digressing, but um, I completely agree with the whole, you know, the 50s and 60s, we sort of, everything that got introduced really had, you know, everything that was Asian was wonderful. Yes. Or Mediterranean was, was everything that wound up in the, in the horticultural trade. Um, but when we started to walk back from that a little bit, and you'd go to, you know, Arboreta and beautiful botanical gardens, you know, over in the corner they would have the native plant selection. You know, and I used to joke that I could, I could put on a blindfold and walk up and tell you what plants were there. Because it was the same 12 plants. I was like, well, that's lovely, but you know, there's 2,300 native to our area, so maybe we could get beyond 12. Um, so it's, it's trying to, to impart that information uh, through, through both scientific, passing on scientific information as well as funny stories. You know, um, you know sweet gum trees. You know, the, the big innovation of sweet gum trees is they bred them so that they don't produce gumballs. I grew up on Gumwood Drive, okay? Sweet gum trees were all over our yard. And if nothing else, if you have brothers and sisters, they make the greatest ammo. We just had an endless source of ammo every battle we ever wanted to do. You know, my father hated them because he had to he rake them up. But, um, you know, the idea of having a sweet gum tree that doesn't have gumballs doesn't make any sense to me. Black walnut was always my favorite ammo. Well, <laughs> yes, we didn't have black walnuts. I have them now. I have them now. I pitch them at the occasional deer that gets too close. But, but it's, you know, for that need for always something new, always something different, I know I've mentioned this at some point on the podcast uh, before Princeton Nursery. I had worked at Star Roses, which is also the Connor Pyle Company. And that whole company's premise with Roses was based on people love them and they love them so much that they'll die every year and they'll rebuy them. And, <laughs> yeah. and, or we can just keep producing new ones every year that they'll love even more and they'll just keep adding to that collection. And when you think of 
that and, and the Asian varieties and all these things, that's where all the diseases tended when you look at our chestnut uh, and how we lost them because that came over on uh, Chinese chestnut and mm-hmm. those types of things. It's, it really hurt our ecosystem, and sometimes you don't realize how important it is until it's almost gone. Well, it's interesting. You touched on something else that, that I think was a change in the horticultural industry. Is If you look at some of the gardening books from the first half of the 1900s, um, there were a lot of perennials in them. And then sort of in the 50s and 60s and 70s, everything turned into annuals. You know, you just, the, the, the disposable plant. Um, there was a, a, a woman who moved out to the countryside um, from a more urban environment, and um, she wanted to plant her yard. She, she decided she wanted natives, but she wanted a perennial native that would flower the same color in a solid bed of color from March until November. And I said, it doesn't exist. She said, well, they used to do it at my old condo. And I said, no, they didn't. They ripped the annuals out while you were at work and replaced them with other ones. You know? <laughs> uh, I said, they're, 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 this was not the same thing. But we, a lot of gardening sort of evolved into plants being disposable. You put in the ones that are flowering now, and then you rip them out and put in the new mm-hmm. ones that are flowering instead of really creating a plant community where you have perennials flowering at different times and interacting with each other and really supporting the environment instead of, you know, changing them out. Oh, I don't know, like you might, you know, change out your jewelry, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, this month is over. I'm going to change my jewelry and I'm going to change my plants, whatever. You know, um, instead of accessorizing with plants to actually create a plant community that works together. And it, it, it takes being involved in that community to yes. build that community because we're, we're part of it. And I agree. I was actually going to, to bring up the, the idea that sometimes gardening is accessorizing. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're putting in what looks best. You're getting rid of it when you want to change. When you can have all these changes and have all this interaction, if you build it, if you work with it, it it's, it's amazing when – with my wife seeing when I add something and what happens and what the cause and effect of adding that plant is. And she wants to get involved. She wants to see what's happening. Well, if we do this, what if we took this out? What if we put this in? What if, you know, this, this is a non-native rose. What would happen if we put in a native rose? What would that build? And you're building something, and it's just an understanding that I think has been lost over time as we, as we lose our connection. And, and I'll even add to that is sometimes these – Plant communities are supposed to change. It's actually absolutely. Bill, Bill and I were talking earlier um, about that they put in a meadow in at his property, and it's like, oh yeah, it's cool seeing that first year, and you have all the the black eyed susans and all this early successional stuff, and knowing that that's not what it's going to be next year, and that's not what it's going to be the year after that, and then eventually it'll kind of fall into a place where it it settles out a little bit, but even then, it's still changing, and there's things that are coming in and popping up, and it's. It's a, a journey in a way. It's not just a, um, the same thing every year. Well, it's the idea that the garden grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It grows, which means it's going to change. You know, if you put in a tree, it's going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. If you don't kill it, it will get bigger. You know, shrubs are going to grow. They're going to change. Meadows, even when you have a mature meadow, you, know, you have a year with a drought like this, your meadow is going to yeah. be di- different next year. Yeah. You have a the meadow the year after in Ida, it's going to be different than it was the year before because your garden, your woods, 
your meadow, your fields, your forests, they're going to react to environmental conditions. And whether that's global warming or um, smaller changes, um, a garden grows and it changes. And, and that's another thing that I think folks have, have some difficulty with. Now, I know I have some friends who work in, in uh, some garden centers and um, you know, a lot of their customers, they, you know, they, they want to buy the plant full-sized and be assured that it's never going to get any bigger. Um, which, again, plants grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, uh, if plants didn't grow, I could have sold a heck of a lot more eastern red cedar today. <laughs> they are really cute when they're only like 18 inches tall. But you tell them, oh, this is going to be like you can keep 40, them, 50 foot tall tree. You, and, you can keep them small if you have deer. Yeah. <laughs> Since we're already off script, I'm going to keep us off script. By the way, they didn't give me a script, so it's not my fault. I, Go ahead. All right. And Fran, I, was, I was even thinking, Fran, we always tell people we're going off script, but they don't know what script well, we're I had, I had, I had emailed Randy at some point questions, I think. Not but. very many. <laughs> <laughs> they, that, that always changes. It's throat. There you go. <laughs> so the, um, you mentioned global warming. And one of the conversations that, that – always comes up, not really on the podcast, just kind of on the periphery with all of our guests, mm-hmm. is how do you plan, a, not, not even a garden, an ecosystem based on climate change? How do you plan on maybe what, what it is now may not be what it is in 10 years? And do we prepare for that now, or do we prepare the same way we always have? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's not an easy question. It isn't an that. easy question. And, 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 and my, my, my first thought answer is, at the end of the day, we can't really plan for it because we've never done this before. We haven't had modern humans living during a period of time where we're going to have such incredibly rapid, potentially incredibly rapid changes in weather and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like we have some models you know scientists have developed models where they think they know where it's going to get wetter where it's going to get drier the storms are going to get heavier the coasts are going to get a little crazy sea levels are going to rise there's a lot of things that we were there's some things we know are going to have sea levels are going to rise um who's going to get more thunderstorms who's going to get less thunderstorms how exactly is the um Global weather patterns going to change? You know, the jet stream, how is it going to change the dip? We're not exactly sure. We have models, and the scientists are working really hard to make those predictions. Um, maybe we should all buy, you know, cropland in Canada. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think we need to try our best to keep certain ecosystems from going extinct we need to do our best to try to look at those models and look at what's happening on the ground in real time and try to make sure that we can preserve plants and ecosystems as best we can and that's a huge and complicated job you know one of the things that's very um, controversial um, is the idea of for example if you have a rare species that's growing on a mountaintop in georgia and that mountaintop is getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Well, 
do we just let that population wink out? Oh, well, it's done. Sorry. We'll put up a little gravestone for it. Or do you take that and move that several mountains further north? Because that plant has no ability to just jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. Do you move it up to Virginia? Do you move it up to Pennsylvania? But those mountaintops already have rare species of their own growing on them. So if you're now taking a Georgia species and even moving it into the North Carolina mountains where it wasn't, are you now endangering species that are on top of the North Carolina mountains that have got their own uh, community that they grow in? And it's terribly controversial, for, with good reason, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But watching you know, a single population of plants just creeping up the mountainside and trying to find a cool spot on the top of the mountain to continue to grow. Not only is sad for any species that we're looking at losing, but who depends on that species? Who pollinates that species? What caterpillars feed on that plant? If you look at um, any site that has a lot of information, whether it's iNaturalist or butterflies and moths or any of the other ones, we're just talking about Lepidopter here, just butterflies and moths. Forget all the rest of the insects. Um, if you look up a lot of them, you know, under host plant, unknown. Unknown, unknown. We know what the adults look like. We don't even know what the caterpillars of some butterflies and moths look like. Mostly moths. We don't know what a lot of them look like. So we don't know what species is relying on this plant, which is now clinging, this, this, this mythical plant that's clinging to the top of a mountain in Georgia. Um, <laughs> But who's relying on that? And if we lose that plant, do we lose that insect? And if we take that plant and move it to a mountaintop in North Carolina, but we don't take the caterpillars or the butterfly, well, then we've only solved part of the problem. What is that plant in Hawaii that is only perpetuated now by humans rappelling up and down and hand-pollinating it? I can't remember what it is. I know they have it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's the, the pollinator's extinct. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's, you just have to sort of, yeah, we have, we have human volunteers yeah. pollinating it. One of the things that put what you just were talking about in perspective to me, Randy, was I was in a meeting uh, hosted by the U.S. Forest Service a handful of years ago, and they built a model mm-hmm. that kind of, it was for uh, basically woody species, a lot of your trees, or mostly trees, I shouldn't even say woody species. And, um, and basically they said if we want a tree that's going to be uh, thrive in this area well if we're going to plant an oak tree that's going to be around for 300 years uh, like a white oak and we can't take seed from right here and put it back here because the climate as it if it continues on this trajectory is not going to be like it is here so we should probably look be looking further south so they built this whole model and where i was saying to put in perspective is as they would push it out okay now we're at 25 years where would you have to get seed to grow it in in north bergen new jersey where would i have to get seed 25 years down the road, that'll fit here. Where do I have to get seed? 50 years. And it kept shifting further further south and gets tighter and tighter on the map. And eventually, the the areas just disappeared. Like, if right. you were out, like, 100, 125, 150 years, there were no places that you could get a seed or an acorn that oh, you could grow species. an oak that was would thrive here 150 years from now by their models. And um, it just, yeah, really put a lot of in perspective. It's like, ooh, this is... Yeah, this is going to change pretty quick. 
And, and 150 um, years isn't that long for, in the future. Yeah, for, for a tree is not, even for looking at human generations, really isn't that far. You think back 150 years, it seems so long ago and things were so different, but throughout human evolution, it's not really that. It's what, the tip of your fingernail probably. Yeah. So. All right. Now, how do we go back to where we were on that? <laughs> <laughs> so you asked the question. I yeah. know, I know. I get it to myself. <laughs> So you what, gave me that soapbox. I, I did. So what <laughs> what made you continue on to higher education? So you, you go to get your bachelor's, you find it interesting. Did you ever think about changing paths, or what made you continue all the way on to your doctorate? More good questions. Uh, so, so in high school, I had a great biology teacher, Dr. Costelli. I have no idea what the man's first name was. It was Doctor. That's what we called him. Um, He died just about two years ago, and he was fabulous. He was a fabulous educator, and he... There was a lot of hands-on labs. Um, He asked a lot of great questions. Um, Certainly, when I went to college, well, when I was in high school, you know, no guidance counselor was saying to me, have you considered entomology? <laughs> you know, that's just not on their radar, you know? Um, actually, I, I think it would be great fun to go into a guidance counselor's office and say, I want to be an entomologist, and have them be like, what is that again? <laughs> uh, looking through their, I was mimicking looking through a book. Um, so I started out because I was, I'd, I'd always been fascinated by plants and, and the insects that were around them, it, I didn't even know people studied entomology. That, that wasn't on my radar. Um, so I had some fabulous professors at the University of Delaware. Uh, department head, Dr. Bray, um, had a wonderful introductory entomology course that was just um, was incredibly popular on campus. And I was like, oh, people study this stuff. Uh, so I finished, I finished working on plants, but then I, I actually was, was going into agriculture. Um, it, University of Maryland, I was, I was studying entomology and weed science. And no, that is not the study of pot. Um, uh, weed science. But it was looking at the interactions. And it was, everybody was just looking at, they weren't looking at the, the, the plants that were just off the side of the road. They, they were so focused on what was growing in a soybean field or what was growing in a corn field or a wheat field. You know, and I kept just sort of veering... I won't do this. I was going to veer away from the mic and get very quiet. Um, but I kept veering off. It's like trying to look to see what else was going on. Um, and I think I just I kept going on in graduate school because I just had questions. There was just always so much to learn. And even when I was doing my work uh, at North Carolina State University, um, and I was looking at actually insects as vectors of plant disease. Um, they transmit Some insects can transmit plant viruses. Um, and I was looking at aphids, and um, there's, there's more than 2,000 different species of aphid in the United States, and most of them are extremely host-specific, and most of the people I've ever talked to, except for a few entomologists, don't care a whit about them, um, because they're not, in, they're not moths, they're not butterflies, they're not beautiful. Um, but again, people were focused on the ones that were on the crops, not on the ones that were in the plants that were five feet from the crop field. And the interactions, in the case of the research that I was doing, 
Um, the aphids were actually picking up the virus from native plants that were off the field and then transmitting it into the field. Mm-hmm. But nobody was thinking about that. So I, I kept going on to graduate school because I just had questions and interesting things that I wanted to study. You know, and then got my PhD. I'm like, hmm, okay, I guess I need to get a job now. <laughs> you know? uh, so I, did, I worked at the USDA for a few years, but it was the same kind of thing. I was still looking at, at how, how plants affected insect behavior. Um, because we, we don't think about insects as having brains or active behavior. I was still working on aphids. The idea that aphid actually has directed flight and will choose which plant it lands on. People are like, they're, they're like the size of a pencil tip. It's like, mm-hmm, yes, they are. Yes, they are. And if you have a yellow plant, they will go toward that yellow plant, most of them. Mm. Um, but it was, it was just, there were just questions. Did, did you ever think that your inquisitiveness would lead you to be as influential as you are in this industry? Because you are. I mean, you have to know that. I would assume that you know that. But I think it's that quest for knowledge that makes everyone else want to know those answers as well. Yeah, I, I, you embarrass me with the question because I, 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 I don't think I'm influential. I, I would like to th- think I've influenced a few people, but um, I, like, I like to ask questions and see a light bulb go on. Um, I was speaking a couple of years ago to the Ecological Landscape Alliance Conference up in New England, and and this is the that group. It's 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 speaking to the choir. It's lecturing to the choir, singing to the choir. They, the, the, these are all people that already get it. They know about native plants. They know what they're supposed to be doing. And I was talking about where insects overwinter, not only the importance of native plants, and I was talking about ecoregions, but I was talking about where insects overwinter, and that the poster child, which is the monarch butterfly, has the has the it's well-behaved. It flies away to Mexico. We don't have to think about the monarch butterfly in the winter, um, which is nobody wants to think about insects in the winter. But most of the insects in your garden, most of the butterflies, they put in a butterfly garden, and they entice all these butterflies to come to their garden, and then winter comes, they cut down all the stems, they rake away all, every bit of vegetation, and they put it in a you know, plastic bag, and they put it to the curb to go to the dumpster. And they've just taken all the overwintering butterflies, all the overwintering creatures, and thrown them in the trash. And the entire room that I was speaking to at this conference, I could hear the jaws drop as one. They were like, oh. And I was mobbed afterwards. They were like, we didn't think about that. Because people have been trained that this is, you know, that the garden should be cleaned up to a, so it looks like a swept sidewalk um, for the winter. But, but, but they're taking away all the overwintering insects that are either in the stems, on the stems, in the leaf duff, underneath the plants. And then the next year, I said, you really, it's sort of a suicide pact when you put in a butterfly garden and you entice all these things to come to your garden and then you rake away all the overwintering stages. Um, but that was, that was like a really exciting day for me because all these landscapers that were into doing ecological landscaping learned something really, really important. Um, and the idea, and this is the whole leave the leaves idea, so, you know, mm-hmm. stop removing all the wildlife from your garden every winter. And that's, that's really, you know, that's important because, like you said, that's the choir, and you made them realize something that they hadn't realized. It's, 
I just love every day seeing those posts on social media and the traction that has it's been getting at least as of as of late which kind of makes me wonder since you started your nursery in 1996 how has your customer changed have you seen more of an awareness uh in the last 20 years from who you were selling to then to who you are selling to now I think I have, but I think it is just, it's become much more mainstream. Um, I think when I first started selling, it was, there was, there, there were certainly people that were very excited to have these. Um, and some of them, particularly early on, were folks that were so excited to find plants that they remembered from their childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, these were plants that were in their yard growing up that, you know, I remember speaking to one group and I like to think I'm a pretty good speaker and I was in the middle of a presentation and a woman in the back was openly weeping and I felt kind of bad. I'm like, well, I didn't think the lecture was that bad, you know. Um, But uh, I had blue mist flower in the presentation and that was a plant that she remembered from her grandmother's yard and she didn't know the name of it and hadn't seen it. And, you know, it just popped up on the screen. And she just, she was overwhelmed with emotion because these were plants that people remembered from their childhood. Um, but it's gotten much beyond that now. You know, there, there, there was, there were certainly some ecologists that were excited to find native plants back then um, and folks that, that, you know, plants from their childhood. But now uh, people are actively engaged in the idea that this is the right thing to do. You know, we... You know, it doesn't mean you need to cut down the lilac that your grandmother gave you, but if you populate the majority of your property with native plants, um, you know, it is going to excellent for the planet, excellent for your community, and it's going to draw wildlife into your garden. You know, I mean, I always maintain, you know, a garden with birds and bees and butterflies flying around is so much more interesting than one without that. Speaking of um, greater awareness, uh, let's talk about the Native Plant Society in New Jersey. You're you're the president of the Native Plant Society in New Jersey, and why is this organization important to you? I think NPS and J serves a great need in many communities where like-minded people can come together and talk about and learn about native plants and the plants that are native to their their area you know it's it's um, we have i think 11 chapters throughout the state at this point and certainly the chapters down near cape may they're going to be looking at different plants than the ones in bergen county um they're going to be looking at different ones than the ones in hunterton county because those just those three chapters, they're in different ecoregions. They have entirely different habitats. And this way, they can get together and talk about and learn about what plants are native to their very specific community. And what's more, they can, they can teach other communities and other folks to use those. Uh, I think NPSNJ has a great role in reaching out to communities and, and, and doing tabling events and talking to all kinds of different groups, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and school groups and gardening clubs and 
making folks understand why this is an important thing that they should think about in their gardens. Because although, you know, those of us that are, that are sort of knee-deep in the industry, you know, you know mm-hmm. we get it. We, we understand how important native plants are. But this is still a very new concept to a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, teaching people to, to understand and appreciate um, native plants, as well as protect them. You know, um, uh, protection, you know, we, we have a very... There are a lot of people in New Jersey. <laughs> There's just a lot of people in New Jersey. You know, we're, and people don't protect the things they don't understand. You know, they're either afraid of them or they don't find use to them. So, you know, protecting our native plants is also very important, and having people understand why we should protect them. Um, you know, some people are very focused on only having deer-resistant plants because we, we have a lot of people in New Jersey. We also have a lot of deer in New Jersey. Um, so, you know, they want to put in plants, you know, plant X because, well, it's deer resistant. It's like, well, yes, so is a plastic bush. Let's talk about some native plants. Um, let's, let's talk about some native plants that you can put, because there are some deer resistant native plants and ways that you can landscape to create um, more diverse landscapes that are going to be able to tolerate a higher deer pressure um, because you've got native deer resistant plants intermixed with, well, plants that the deer might chew on now and again. Um, but it's, um, I think NPSNJ has a really exciting role in, in educating people. And we've uh, started, um, well, with, with COVID, we started a webinar series, um, which has been enormously popular and reached a lot of people. The membership, actually, of NPSNJ has um, gone up by, uh, say, I did this math a couple months ago for something I wrote. Um, I think in the last... Six years, it's gone up 500% membership. Wow. So um, it's really exploding. I, I think with COVID, you know, that was a, a big um, opportunity for a lot of people to get reconnected with nature because there wasn't a whole lot you could do. Um, and that was a way to get out of the house and experience something that you're a part of, but you don't really take notice of all the time. And, and you, you know, we always try to remember not everyone has access to nature. Um, but... When you're trying to get someone involved, and everyone's on different parts of their journey, when you like come out, come out with me to a plant sale. We're going to go to a park. Mm-hmm. Like I could see where some people might say, "Well, that's a half an hour drive there, half an hour drive back." If I don't like it, I'm stuck. But to hop on a webinar, and you have nothing to lose, and you can <laughs> learn something, and if you, you're like, eh, "If I don't like it, I can turn it off." That's but true. It's it's nice to see that you had people tune in, but not only tune in, but join. Um, yes, uh, yes. It's, it was really extraordinary. And, and actually something you said made me think of, of, of another point that happened during COVID is an awful lot of people who, you know, all our lives are very busy, you know, and, you know, pre-COVID, you know, people were, you know, they get up, get their kids to school, go to work, come home, grab the kids, take the kids to soccer practice, grab some dinner, you know, get the homework done, go to bed. Um, and on the weekend they were off doing things. And then suddenly COVID happened and everybody was home. And there was an enormous number of people that just sort of looked at their yards and went, huh, <laughs> you know, I think I can do better. Um, and and that, was, that, was a, that was a big groundswell of people who, through education, had learned, it was just like, well, not only can I do better, but 
wow, maybe native plants would be a really good idea and I could get butterflies and birds and help the environment. There were a lot of people that were taking a completely different, new and different look at what they might do in their own yards, however large or small. You know, um, I mean, we have, Toadshade has sold a lot of plants to people in New York City. We have some fabulous native plants that are growing on balconies. I don't know how many feet in the air, but there's a lot of native plants growing on balconies um, in New York City because people are looking to see how they can how they can add greenery and add native plants and all that they can do for us into their community. I'm sorry, Tom. Were you going to say something? Uh, I was, but I completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Um, we uh, we see that too. The awareness is wonderful the amount of outlets when we started there were only a couple of native plant podcasts uh the native plant podcast in defense of plants which is not all native plants but mm-hmm. um there's a lot of options there's also a yeah. lot of options if you like sasquatch that really grinds uh, grinds Fran's gears is all the sasquatch podcasts out there yeah, but what, native, what native plants does Sasquatch feed on? Any yeah. I, w- I asked the same thing. I was like, maybe we need to join forces with the Sasquatch podcast and find what can we do to attract more Sasquatches to our yards. And, but uh, what I was going to say is where I was really proud with the native plant side in New Jersey is I'm involved with a bunch of different organizations, and so many of them, when COVID hit, said, well, we can't do anything and and um, and didn't really do much over the last two years, two plus years now, and now they're starting to do stuff again. They're finding out, well, we kind of lost, they expected people to be loyal and kind of lost some members because they said, I have other ways to spend my time. I don't need to go to this meeting or that meeting. But the Native Plant Society was there and kept found a way to keep things going virtually. And uh, and all, all these people are sitting at home and saying, oh, what else can I do with my lawn? They had an answer. And now there was, there was content that was coming out that as people were thinking this and saying, oh, I wonder if there's a better way, the Native Plant Society was there saying, hey, there is a better way, and come listen to you, or, or uh, we did one, and I'm trying to think of, some of Sam Hoadley oh. did one the other night, and it's like, come and listen to these people tell you what you should be doing or, or what you might be interested in doing. Um, so it makes sense that so many more people joined because they saw the value in it. And when they didn't have anything else, anywhere else to turn, there was the answer was right in front of them. Someplace yeah, that no, could help them out. We absolutely jumped into that with bo- both feet and our eyes closed. Um, and it worked, <laughs> it worked really well because we had not been doing virtual uh, webinars at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't remember exactly when our first one was, but I think it was, I want to say maybe May of, 2020 um and and we just we just took off running with it and it was um uh the response was fabulous from our members and it got shared far and wide Mm -hmm. which was just terrific for all the talks that tom and i have done that was the the best attended and that's not indicative of us that's indicative of the native plant society in new jersey Mm -hmm. that was the turnout based on the content that the organization puts out for their members and and i think that's great and no one wrote us uh nasty messages in the chat box at least that we saw no (laughs) that's only happened that's only happened once I'd like uh, to say do tell, but perhaps uh, not. I'll, I'll tell. It was we were we were giving a talk, and literally we were in the introduction, and someone posted only so that we could see it and the host could see it that 
this is the biggest waste of time. This talk is horrible. I can't believe I paid money for this. I'm out of here. And all we did was say our names. <laughs> we were on the first slide. It was, it was, we're like, wow. Like, and I, we just, I started laughing. And I didn't realize that no one else could see it. I thought everyone could see it, but I didn't realize it was just us. I, I laughed for a good minute because I was like, well, I guess, guess you can't please everybody. But um, I want to talk about specific native plants. But before we do that, one last question um, for you is we kind of talked about your career what were it's a two-part two-pronged question what were some of the challenges that you faced along your way and what is some advice you could give to someone looking to take the same career path well it was a bit of a zigzag career path i do have to say um well you might want to try or or might want to try a straighter line (laughs) 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 um uh let's see um I think whatever your career is, I think it's it's important to go into something that you're passionate about. Uh, Nobody wants to go to a physician who hates being a physician, Um, and you know nobody wants to go to use a lawyer who hates being a lawyer. Um, You know, find something that you're passionate about. And, and follow that. And if, what you're, if you're headed down a particular career path and you realize that, 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 that maybe you should branch off and go a different direction, that's a really great idea. You know, I, I worry about kids sometimes who go to college and they're like, well, I signed up to be an X major, you know, whatever that is, and it's really not working and I really hate it. But I told them that that's what I was going to major in. Just like, no, 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 change majors. Changing majors is perfectly fine. It's a wonderful idea. Find something that you're passionate about and that you love to do. Um, and, and do it. And just because someone else isn't doing it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Um, you know, the, uh, I will tell you, Little known secret: the very first mail order plant that I shipped arrived dead on arrival. <laughs> but you know, I'd worked with plants a lot. I knew darn well that, and that was error. But I knew darn well that you could put a plant in dark for a day, and it'll be just fine. You could put them for several days, and it'll be just fine. Like mail order plants is not that hard. Um, there's some logistics to it that are a little complicated, but the plants themselves are tough, and this can be done. Um, so just because someone's not doing it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. If you have a great idea, go for it. Um, I think that sort of answers your question. That's a great, great answer. Great answer. So we, we typically almost always end on what's your favorite native plant. We've had you on before, and, and you mentioned that, but we're – we're not going to limit this to one plant. We'd like to talk about some of your favorite native plants in general. And it can be herbaceous, woody. Just let's highlight a few that we can throw out there to get everyone excited about native plants. Well, thank God, because I think the qu- list of questions that you sent me was, what is your favorite native plant? And that's like asking a mother to pick her favorite <laughs> child. It's just not fair. We, um, like, we kind of... That question's cruel, but we kind of like asking it. I don't know. <laughs> it, you get good answers. 
Well, and, and, and sometimes when people ask me that question, I'm like, oh, today? <laughs> or this hour? You know, uh, because it does change. You know, um, I mean, I already talked about, I, I do have an incredible sweet spot in my heart for sweet gums. Um, because I did grow up on Gumwood Drive, which I love to point out to people. And, you know, people, you know, they see Luna Maws and they're like, oh, they're so rare. They actually weren't that rare on Gumwood Drive because we had sweet gum trees all over the place. So we had Luna Maws. I mean, we didn't have flocks of them, but, you know, I mean, Luna Maws were not that uncommon um, when I was growing up. And since I was that nerdy, eventually entomologist kid, yeah, I would, like, go outside and see what bugs were coming to the lights at night. My poor parents. Oh, my God. Um, I love wild eastern columbines, uh, Aquilegia canadensis, because my part of New Jersey, that's what the hummingbirds go to. That's what they go to first. You know, the hummingbirds, as they migrate north, they show up as the wild eastern columbines are opening because they're not going to migrate ahead of a nectar source. That would seem a really poor idea for a very hyper bird. Um, so I, I love those. I love black walnut trees. I like to champion black walnut trees because there's this... Somebody asked me about this just earlier today, and, and, it, and it isn't a myth, but, but there is this myth that under every black walnut tree, there's like this, this, this dead zone crop circle where nothing grows. Well, that's not true. You can't grow tomato plants under a black walnut tree. It's true. I've tried. It doesn't work. Um, you can't grow peppers. There's a lot of vegetable plants you can't grow under a black walnut but if you go out in the woods, there's a lot of stuff growing underneath black walnuts, and they feed so much wildlife. Um, not only the squirrels, which you can hear, because you can hear them, gnaw- those nuts are really hard. You can hear them gnawing on them. They don't crack them in the woods, you know, <laughs> trying to get into the black walnuts. Um, you know, there's just, there's such a great preponderance of native plants. I love violets. Violets and spring beauties. I used to bring my mother bouquets of violets and spring beauties from the lawn. Fran, not to get too far off track here, but I just remembered this. So I mentioned earlier uh, on many episodes ago that my wife had made a uh, violet simple syrup. Yes. And I thought we used it all. (laughs) She lost it in our our cabinets and just found it the other day. So now it's violet hooch. And it was really good. It was like really, really good. Okay, so so is there any left, Tom? Uh, yeah, yeah. I just remember that I found that the other day, and I'm like, oh. What's Did you this? bring a flask? I don't have it with me, now, but it, yeah, it was. I I haven't died Violet from it, but hooch. I need yeah. the recipe. Yeah, well, I think it was just water, sugar, and <laughs> violets. Okay. It was it was really when she made it, it was like a really awesome purple. All right. Just like it looked like something that would be on like a witch's shelf. In a movie. <laughs> it was just like this like neon purple color. And then um, now it's more of like a, a gold, which I was surprised it lost its color being in a dark yeah. cabinet. But um, I was like, when she well, she told me she found it. And I was like, don't throw it out. I want to try this before you throw <laughs> it out. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was surprisingly good. It's really sweet because it has yeah. all the sugar in it. But can, can we drink slightly, it on the next podcast? We might have to. It's only like a little bitty bottle of it, so... I've not that, tried that. I, ha- I have tried crystallized violets before and put yeah, them on stuff, that has to be good um, which is which is quite fun. It's yeah. like egg white and sugar, and you get these these beautiful little violet yeah. flowers. That's but I, just, I feel bad. I cut you off, but I 
I kept thinking, oh, yeah, I got to tell Fran about the, the violet. That's pretty is cool. It, the is violet it, liqueur. Is it better is than the black cherry hooch? I don't know. That was that was really mm. good. Yeah, that was, that really, was good. really good. That was very good. Okay, you guys gonna just like have a hooch podcast? Yeah. Can, we, can, can, can I come back for it, <laughs> yeah. please? Yes. yes, I like that. We should do like yeah. one a month. It'll yeah. be a hooch episode. Hey, hey but, but, you know, we we could, we, could, we do like native plant cocktails. I've been telling yeah. everybody that I think I'm going to try to get one of the bars near us to have uh, uh, mountain mint mojitos. Ooh, I, I think like it would be a really good idea. You know, mm-hmm. I know uh, one. Uh, I'm not sure if they still do it, but Screaming Hill Brewery in Cream Ridge would do an elderberry. Uh, uh, beer, but they also did it in coordination with Cream Ridge Winery, so they would do an elderberry wine, and they would do an elderberry beer, and uh, he said that was really popular, but they hadn't done it in a couple years with COVID, but it's it's really good. All right, all right. (laughs) It's really good. Um, I think it might be a good time, I'm just looking at time to to open up to questions from our audience. Does does anyone have a question or would like to come up and ask a question to Randy or Tom or myself? Or just tell us what a great job we did. You can do that, yeah. too. That's fine. Why, yeah, we accept up. compliments. No complaints. Wisecracks. Wisecracks. <laughs> yes. That works, too. Uh, yes, my question is, oof, um, what do you think about the new legislation that is being passed in New Jersey? Uh, I, uh, we talked before about the... Non-invasive species. The invasive species, but also there's going to be a program launched uh, to, uh, like, the, the native New Jersey plant uh, brand, and how is that going to help our cause? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Very good. Uh, let me take those in the order that they were given. Um, so there is uh, legislation currently being considered. It's not been passed um, in Trenton that would make it illegal to sell certain invasive species in New Jersey. Uh, most of the communities, most of the states around us, have laws against selling at least some invasive species, and New Jersey does not have that. It's one of the conversations that I have with folks that are very surprised to discover that the plant that they just bought um, from uh, some other nursery um, uh, is, is in, invasive. They're like, well, why didn't they label it that way? Well, because they're trying to sell it to you, so they're going to call it invasive. Um, so I think it'll be, I think it'd be very, if we can get it passed, uh, if the state passes, and I think it'd be very good for our gardens and our communities to, to stop introducing invasive plants into our landscape. I think Delaware, it was just the past year, I think it was 22 or 25 mm-hmm. uh, species that they banned. I think over half of them are in my backyard right now. Um, but and I know Pennsylvania did they just do calorie pair? I think so. Yes. Yeah, I think, yeah. So. I think so. So I I like that we're looking at that because so many of these items are a real issue for us, and it that's part of the you know we always talk about you have the New Jersey invasive strike team and all the things that you can do to help remove invasives. Part of that is not planting anymore. If you can stop planting them, you can you can start to make some some headway on on the the real problem but it's if you can stop them from being sold we can make good strides towards fixing the problem i think yeah it's um encouraging people to use natives is great but if we step back just like first could we just do no harm in our gardening (laughs) (laughs) could could we just could we just start there um so i think that i'm really excited about the potential of that one getting passed um and, and the Jersey Native program is going to make people more aware of what Native options there are in all 
garden centers and all nurseries. Um, so I think that's, that's going to be a good educational tool and help people make, make better choices um, when, they, when they choose plants for their gardens. And, and in some cases, they, I think they will be surprised at both which ones are native and which ones mm-hmm. are not. You mean they don't know that Japanese maple is not native? Some, <laughs> some, some, some of them are, are surprised by that. Um, but, yeah, but, well, yeah. some of them have, have more. Well, Kentucky bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kentucky bluegrass is not from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Kentucky bluegrass is Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah. But what a great marketing idea to call it Kentucky oh, bluegrass. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, I think it was the book 1491, and it was towards the end of the book where they actually talked about Kentucky bluegrass and how the first European settlers who ever made it to Kentucky found it there because it had came in with other previous voyages and just had spread and spread and spread. And so the first Europeans who ever set foot in Kentucky, the bluegrass was already there when they got there because it just spread that fast and yeah. beat them there. And, uh, and I, told, I was actually in Kentucky for a, the Eastern Native Grassland Symposium, and uh, I told them that story. And... They were like, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty interesting. Now, the, their secretary of agriculture gave a speech to start the program, and he was talking about how great Kentucky bluegrass was. But I didn't tell him. <laughs> I, I didn't get a chance. His bodyguards were, were around him. Do we have any other questions? Come on up. Hey, uh, yeah, really enjoying uh, hearing you. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't think I was going to ask a question. I'm here because of my wife. <laughs> but uh, you know, um, he, being in social situations with my uh, native plant firebrand of a wife, um, I've had uh, I've heard a lot of people say when she explains the importance of native plants, they say one was a, an employee at a at a nursery in Jersey, another one was a person in in Spain. But they say, uh, yeah, but. Ecosystems are supposed to evolve, so you can't just keep all the native stuff in there. And I have some theories, as uh, some non-professional theories, as to why that's a flawed argument. But I wanted to hear your professional answer. Sure. You mind if I throw something in? There real Please quick. do. Um, one of the articles that we share. So on every other episode, Tom and I do a buzz, and we do kind of like a current events. And one of the articles was about native plant material in Hawaii. And that there really isn't any anymore. And part of the issue is that that plant material co-evolved with uh, the birds and the insects and that the native birds are gone now, too, because they didn't adapt. Their beaks couldn't hold the seed uh, for the plants that are there now. So it's it's really instead of a very biodiverse system, it's it's not very biodiverse at all. So you lose if you, you can't have all of it. You can't have one without the other because over time, these things co-evolve together. They, they coexist. And if you move one thing away, it's kind of like monarchs on, uh, feeding on milkweed. They, they need that where it's poisonous to a lot of other uh, uh, insects. So it's, to me, it's just one of the things that's flawed to it. Like you're not just bringing in other plants. You're changing the landscape. You're changing what's there, and you're making it less biodiverse. Right, and, you know, I agree with everything Fran just said, and to, to, to riff off the monarch story, but you bring in black swallowwort, and black swallowwort, which is an invasive species, closely related to milkweed, but 
monarchs cannot survive on it. It kills the caterpillars. But it's chemically similar enough so that the monarchs get confused and lay their eggs on it. So they lay their eggs on it, and then the caterpillars die because the plant is toxic. So, yes, communities evolve. Uh, Plant communities evolve. Um, If there had never been any human beings on the planet Earth, plant and animal communities would have continued to evolve and change. But we move things around so fast um, and change the environment so quickly that there is not time for communities to really evolve fast enough to keep up with that. Um, you know, there is the thought that you know we live in a post-wild world and we just should get over it and embrace all the invasive species. Well, try to explain that to the monarch butterflies and the fritillaries and the birds that depend upon the caterpillars as well as the fruits and the birds in Hawaii whose beaks are not adapted to deal with the new fruits. The wildlife simply cannot adapt that quickly. Um, you know, it, it reminds me oddly of a, a TED talk that I heard years ago, and I don't I need to look up this, this guy's name, but he was talking about, about just feeding people. And he held up this, this loaf of beautiful artisanal something or another loaf of bread. And he says, how many people think that this is the only bread that should be available for people to eat? Everybody raised their hands in the audience. And then he held up a loaf of some sort of a enriched white bread. And he said, how many people think that we shouldn't ever sell this to anyone? And the people are like, oh, no, we should never sell that. And he says, great, let's start making the list of the people that we're going to let die of hunger. Because it takes a lot of time and energy. This is an expensive loaf of bread, the, 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 the beautiful artisanal loaf, and the other one can be mass-produced. You know, it's like, it'd be great if everybody could eat the lovely one, but at some point, you know, we need to feed things, and we need to remember that we need to feed wildlife as well. Um, not with enriched white bread. But um, <laughs> we, we, need, we need to make sure that we, that we feed, um, feed the wildlife what they need to eat. And not simply say, but it's so pretty. X, 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 Japonica. I love it in my garden. It's just so pretty. <laughs> you know, uh, Tom, I don't even know if I, I shared this whole story, but uh, two years ago I planted swamp milkweed on my property, and my wife has been, as it's coming up in the garden, she has been taking it out and taking it and giving it to coworkers and friends. So she had a mason jar filled with swamp milkweed in our dining room didn't realize that there was a caterpillar on it so she babied this caterpillar she was taking pictures every day created the chrysalis it finally broke out of the chrysalis brought it outside she put it on a plant we're taking pictures and a bird swooped down and and grabbed it and and flew away away with it you know which was very difficult but it was also a good reminder that that's part of the life cycle it everything needs you know what they need to continue on and it was you know, they didn't all get swooped away and taken by birds. You know, many, many made their journey, hopefully. So it's, it's, uh, it was just a good reminder seeing it. It was hard. It, it, was, it, was, it was hard to witness that. But it was, uh, it was nice to see her journey progress uh, with those types of things. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and, and with, with, even with the milkweed, you know, I, I get a lot of phone calls from people. They're like, well, you know, there's other insects eating my milkweed. I'm like, yes. <laughs> 
There are other specialists on milkweed at all. You know, it, it, there, there's a whole community there going on. It's, it's, it's not just a one-on-one milkweed and monarch situation. You said something earlier, Randy, that reminded me of a conversation that this did as well, where uh, I, was, I was asked to sell seeds at a, a honeybee conference. So I did, and then the, probably the most popular question is like, oh, what's the best plant for the honeybees? And I'm like, well, this is a good one, this is a good one. Just kind of went through, and, um, and then I was like, I added on. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really good for bumblebees, and but- this is really good for butterfly. I think I was talking about common milkweed probably saying, oh, the bumblebees really like this too, and it's essential for, for monarch butterflies, specifically the caterpillars. I'm like, I don't want that. I only want it if it's good for honeybees. <laughs> I don't want the other insects stealing all the nectar from the honeybees. And, uh, yeah, it was just uh, an interesting conversation. How yeah, People don't always understand that it's not supposed to just be for one thing. And it's not just supposed to be one plant. It's supposed to be a plant community and then uh, an ecological community after that. So, I, One more question. Does anyone? Sure. Successional kind of planting where something's always flowering, and then I had a I have a son who also loves this as well, and he tried to get through to me this concept of companion planting where like this plant in the backdrop of this plant just brings the radiate like the colors out and the, and the insects feeding off of both like a whole different kind of. I've been trying to look at that a little bit, but and then one time I did attend a lecture with Randy, and I had the milkweed too. I went out and bought it all, and every year he veins, you know, with the with the aphids and everything. And as my garden expanded, now I, I really there's no aphids like in enough numbers to to bother it. Like you know, there's so many uh, beneficials around to take care of that problem. Well, a lot of times I, I feel, and, and you're probably way better prepared to answer this than me, is that when you have an issue with one specific plant, it's a, it's a ecosystem out of whack, or one specific bug. If, it's, if the aphids are so bad that they're eating all your plants and they're dying, something's out of whack there. So it's, if you're doing the right thing and attracting the right, right insects to keep it balanced, it's really good. And just for companion plants, I'll let you answer that way better than me but for companion planting it made me think of braiding sweetgrass if you've never read that book uh pick it up and read the braiding sweetgrass by robin wall kimmerer uh read the chapter on aster and uh goldenrod and that's a fabulous book fabulous book and and i think everybody should read that uh braiding sweetgrass what what a what a wonderful writer um but yes the when you've got an outbreak of an insect or a disease or too many plants even in, in, in a meadow. You know, you, you, you've got something out of balance. Um, years ago, there was a group who contacted me. Um, this was early on. I, th- I think this, this has, has evolved some, but they wanted to have a milkweed highway. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the milkweed highway concept, but this was the you know um, plant milkweed um, in the medians, planted on college campuses, planted on corporate campuses, so we would have this this this, this highway of milkweeds. But the 
at least the person I was talking to thought that they were going to, it was going to be like a cornfield. It was just going to be nothing but milkweeds. And I said, you know, that, don't do that. I said, you know, a monoculture of milkweeds is no more sustainable than a cornfield. You know, it, it, uh, when you have a monoculture, it, pests can go rampant. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a system out of balance. But when we create plant communities and have them grow together, um, you do, you develop a, beyond just the plant community, you have all the creatures that live with them. You have, you know, butterflies and bees and beetles and aphids. There's nothing wrong with aphids unless they're, you know, so many of them that they're killing a plant, in which case it could be a problem. Um, you know, get it all in balance, but we'd also support hawks and songbirds and snakes and turtles and the whole system instead of, you know, replacing one monoculture, lawn, for another monoculture, milkweeds. Um, and I also pointed out to them, I said, you're not going to get any corporate campus to have a monocultural milkweeds on their property because milkweeds, quite rightly, all look terrible by mid-September, which, little sidebar here, is a very important point. People get very stressed out when their milkweeds start looking bad. They're like, well, but the tropical ones still look good. Then I'm like, but the tropical ones do not belong in New Jersey. Milkweeds take their monarchs, take their cue to migrate in three different ways. One is their host plant starts to decline. That triggers them to develop the migratory morph, which has longer wings. It's, it's a different, slightly different beast. But host plant declines, shorter days and cooler temperatures. And if they don't have all those three cues then they don't produce the migratory morph because they're feeding on the tropical milkweed, and they're like, oh, it's lovely, it's fine. Then we get the first frost, and that plant dies. There's no time then for it to do another generation and get out of here. Um, So, you know, milkweeds should look terrible by mid-September. It's what they do. (laughs) One of the things, just to add on quickly was uh, we had Kelly Gill, who's been a guest a bunch of times, and she's she's with the Xerxes Society, and uh, she came out to check out some of our seed fields, and and we said, hey, there's a lot of aphids on these uh, Heliopsis helianthoides or false <laughs> sunflower. There's a lot of aphids on here. Is this going to be a problem? Or And she's like, well, let's take a look. And we went over, and then, yeah, there's like hundreds of aphids on each plant. Hundreds. You're a, a Luke on Rudbeckii, by the way. Yeah, then, <laughs> Just had to give you the scientific uh, name. I, yeah, I don't know the scientific name. <laughs> and then... Um, and then She's like, oh, but look here. And there's, uh, I, you probably know the scientific name of this, too. It was a larval stage of an insect. And she's like, we call them aphid lions because oh, they just eat so many aphids. Yes. And she's Lace like, wing larvae. Yeah, that's right. And she's like, you're not going to have an aphid problem for long because there's just, she started to count. And there's, oh, here's one, here's another one, here's another one. And then a bunch of other predatory insects. And it was just, I mean, when this is, we're growing this in a monoculture. So of course, we knew because we we're going to have seed production. Issues. Yep. But um, yeah, she's like, you're, you have things that are in balance. It, it looks bad now, but come back a week later, it's not going to look bad, and and it didn't. And we had a lot of seed off of it. Yeah. So those little larvae, they they, they have hollow mandibles, and they mm-hmm. just they just pinch them, and then suck all the juices yeah. out of the aphid right yeah. through the mandibles. It was a really cool thing, and she was telling us all the, oh, the stories awesome. of it as well. Very vampiric. <laughs> Kim, do we? I know we're already over on time. Do we have time for final thoughts before we do, or do we need to wrap it? We're, we're good. 
Okay, let's do final thoughts, and then we'll, we'll finish it out. So um, this is the point where we each get to just uh, – we each take the floor for a minute. We get to summarize, promote something, follow up on something we hadn't talked about, but we start with you, and, okay. and you can – the floor is yours. Well, um, I think I will simply promote, and hopefully I get the facts right on this because um, I wasn't entirely thinking about this when I sat down, but – we have the Fall Conference of the Native Plant Society of New Jersey coming up on November 5th. So please go to the website, which is npsnj.org, and look for details there. Sign up. We have a wonderful lineup of speakers there. It'll be an all-day event, um, including uh, a little movie during the lunchtime period, which is only available um, through, there, through our uh, event. And it's, um, it's going to be a great conference. So I hope everyone will join. And while you're there, you should actually join the Native Plant Society of New Jersey. We do a lot of great stuff and do have chapters throughout the state. So please take a look. Awesome. Tom, you want to go or you Brand want me to go? You go. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to mention I love seeing all the faces that came out to sit with us. You, you didn't just tune in. You actually got in your car, drove here, and, and you, you sat and listened to us. So. I really appreciate, and you had questions, and I can't thank everyone enough, and, and it's new faces and old faces, so there were people that weren't even planning to be here that stayed for the whole thing, so that's, uh, that's, that to me is, is very touching, so thank you for everyone who came out today. Yeah, and, and my concluder here is I want to thank Kim and Lorraine for setting all this up, and, uh, and Kim, your husband, too, for helping set all this up, and the whole Hudson County chapter, and... Uh, and then the last, I guess, a really question for everyone out there is, what did you eat that was good here? Because some of the stuff smelled really good, and I saw people chowing down, and we're getting a little hungry, I think. So, um, but, yeah, we want to thank Nature's Park Cafe for hosting us as well. This is a really cool place. And if you are in uh, James Braddock Park in North Bergen, New Jersey, this is a, a place to at least grab a bite to eat and what a maybe something wonderful to drink. view. There was fantastic music. What was the name of the band that was playing earlier? All right, all right. There's Maybe. no name, but his name is Evan Francis. Francis. That's a go. good name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a wonderful atmosphere. Uh, make sure you make the trek out here. It's like a, a beautiful little oasis that I wasn't expecting to see when I made the turn. So wonderful. Well, yeah. With that, do we don't have to do the whole rundown? Or yeah, do let's do it. Okay, let's do it. gotcha. Do I get to thank you guys too? For having me. This was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much. uh, With that, we're going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Randy Eckel from Tochade Wildflower Farm. For more information, visit uh, her website, which is www.toadshade.com. Thank you for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pylons Nursery. We'd like to give a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Although no one here heard it, you will hear it when you tune in, uh, wherever you listen. Um, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we have the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. Uh, we will play it on a future episode of The Buzz, and we will answer it to the best of our ability. And if you're not a member, go to Facebook and join the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group for more conversations like this. So you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch. And, uh, and I will say, everyone who's here, if you haven't gotten our stickers, come and grab our stickers before you leave. 
Um, but you can buy our merch at www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. There's a little banner at the top that takes you to a Teespring store, and uh, and it's not our get rich quick scheme because we don't keep any of the money. We take the money that we make off those T-shirts and give it to organizations we feel really deserve it. And uh, and so far they've been doing a great job with those those couple of dollars. So. Uh, you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. But you're probably going to listen through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, even on YouTube, you can listen again. It wasn't up there for a while because Tom wasn't doing his work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can find us on there as well. Well, fortunately, have, we have someone now to help us. Yes, We're that's very, true. Thank you, Christiane. <laughs> yeah. so, so with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Randy, thank you so much. You're one of my favorite guests. Thank you. Oh, thank I, you for having I, me. It was a lot of fun. And I should say before we're done, uh, everyone who's here, if you aren't subscribed already to our podcast, pull out your phones right now and go to your podcast app of choice and hit subscribe and leave us a five-star review because that goes a long, long way. Yes, it does. It does. And also having wonderful guests. Thank you so really much. Helps. Thank you so much. So coming up next week, we have a buzz episode. Make sure you tune in. Uh, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.